I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. When a social media smear campaign leads to a violent crime, who is to blame and how should they be punished? This is the Lauren Kanarek story. Amy, how are you today? Hi, Megan. I've never heard of this case. I know, and neither had I until, you probably can guess, I was watching an episode of 48 Hours, and I came across it, and I found it so interesting. And I also want to tell you that one of the reasons I was interested in the case is not just because of the case facts, but because the case occurred, guess where? In Morristown, New Jersey, where we teach. Oh, very interesting. When? Recently? I know. Well, well, I'll get to that in a minute. I'll get okay. to that in a minute, I promise. Did you have a good spring break? Yes, I got a lot of work done. But for me, that's a good spring break. <laughs> what about you? I also got a lot of work done. But if you remember, I was supposed to go to Puerto Rico, but could not go. So I was disappointed about that. Disappointed I wasn't able to visit my friend and her kids. However, it's always nice to have time to recharge the batteries and work on women in crime episodes, right? Yep, absolutely. All right. So like I said, this case is one that I became interested after watching 48 Hours. I can't help it. That's like my thing. You read a memoir or a biography and you become interested. I watch like a 48 Hours or a Dateline and I just have to like do a deeper dig on some of them. What appealed to me about this particular story is that there are two sides to view this case from, which makes it an intricate study that will have us and hopefully our listeners engaging in very interesting discussion about different forms of victimization and legal culpability. In fact, I just can't wait to discuss this with you, and I can't wait to hear what listeners have to say in general about it. This is a fairly recent case, since you asked, and a big part of its appeal, again, for me, was also the locality of it. So let's check out this very close-to-home case. It starts with Lauren Kanarek, born in 1981 and raised in Livingston, New Jersey. From the age of two or three, Lauren fell in love with horses, and she came from reportedly a wealthy family, so they were able to provide her with 
writing lessons, and instructors to support her aspirations of becoming a professional rider. As you know, horse riding is a very expensive hobby, so it's not one, unfortunately, that everyone can afford to engage in. I actually distinctly remember when I went to camp when I was a kid, there was a lottery for like one or two kids to have horseback riding camp instead of regular camp, and I won, and it was like the most (laughs) exciting thing in my entire life. A week of horse, horse riding lessons was just so much fun. I couldn't find that much else about Lauren's childhood, Amy, but I can say that Lauren bought her first horse after high school and began serious training in dressage. Now, have you ever heard of dressage? Never. Neither had I. But okay, this is a form of showmanship where the horse and rider perform a certain set of specific movements. It's almost like a dance, they call it. These movements include pirouettes, This is different trotting styles, lateral movements of walking, cantering to a certain rhythm. Again, it's literally like a dance with a horse. It almost sounds like a dog show. It kind of is. Yeah. And the horse is really responsible for, you know, most of the movements here. But it's different than show jumping because, you know, this is where riders have to get um, a horse to jump over a certain number of obstacles in an obstacle course. So dressage is more focused on the horse and the rider achieving harmony together. It's a beautiful sport, so to speak. So Lauren wanted to find the best trainer she could to achieve her goal of becoming a very professional rider. And I'm not sure if her aspirations were to become an Olympic rider or just professional and competitor, but she wanted to be a serious competitor. So in March of 2018, Lauren signed up for a clinic event with Michael Barrisone. He was a former Olympian who took on prospective riders to train for their own dreams, and most of them were Olympic dreams. He was extremely well-known in the equestrian field, and Lauren felt that he would be a perfect fit for her. Much to her delight, after the clinic, Barrison approached Lauren about taking her on as one of his clients, as he thought that she had real potential, and she immediately accepted this invitation from such a prestigious trainer. So besides being an Olympian, who is Michael Barrisone? He was described as a statuesque, regal rider with a great showmanship. And as much as he was a talented rider in his own right, many would argue that he was an even better trainer. His friends called him a passionate, loud man who was fun to be around. He was also very wealthy with both trainees and a stable or stables that he rented out to horse owners who didn't have their own land. So, you know, he's providing training at the facilities, he's got a staff of his own, and then he's also renting out the stables for other people. He also had two primary estates that provided housing for himself and multiple barns and rings for his business. His winter estate was located outside of Palm Beach, Florida, and his summer farm was called Hawthorne Hill in New Jersey and was settled on 52 acres of land. Kind of like the dream, huh? Mm-hmm. Sounds amazing. And as, as a matter of fact, I wrote, Michael was living the American dream. And he had just invited Lauren to come share in that dream at Hawthorne Hill. Now, because Lauren lived quite far from Hawthorne Hill, Michael offered to let her and her boyfriend, Rob Goodwin, move into his farmhouse at Hawthorne Hill so she'd be able to train more frequently. And some thought this was a very generous offer because he was not charging her for living there. Sometimes if something seems too good to be true, it might be. Well, in this case, I think we would find out it doesn't work out quite the way everyone had hoped, but I'll hold on to that for a moment. 
So Lauren and Rob moved into the farmhouse as well as boarding Lauren's two horses on the property. Now, this farmhouse was big. It was very beautiful. Not huge, though. I mean, you know, big enough. But it was also a shared residence with Michael, as well as his staff, his assistant trainers, Justin Hardin and Mary Haskins Gray. So Mary and Michael were also in a relationship and her two children from a previous marriage also spent time living in the farmhouse. They went back and forth between there and living with their father. They reportedly liked Michael very much and spent a lot of time with him. They were reportedly very close. So it seems, though, that there's also a lot of people under this roof, if you might argue it. I think I counted, what, two, Mm -hmm. four, six. How old were the children? The children at that time were a little bit older. I don't know their exact ages, but they were not small children. Okay. They were at least in their teens and, and a little older, maybe even. Now, while Lauren's housing, I said Amy was free, she was paying Michael $5,000 a month to train her with the expectation that Michael would be her exclusive horse trainer. And it seems that Michael did personally train her for a while, but he also had his assistants, Justin and Mary, working with Lauren. According to Michael, he never exclusively trained any of his previous clients. The training responsibilities were always shared between himself and his trainers you know, the reason he has these trainers. But Lauren wanted to be the center of attention and she did not want to train with Justin or Mary. She only wanted to train with Michael. And while this may have seemed a little off the wall, according to Michael, he also said he'd had many difficult clients in the past in this field who were demanding like Lauren. So he didn't really find her behavior to be all that strange. And I think he thought that he could manage it because he'd done that in the past. However, as Lauren consistently stopped getting what she demanded, Amy, she began to make Michael's life miserable. Lauren began calling the police and the town on Michael for a myriad of things she believed was wrong with the residents. She would call and report, or I would say from a lack of smoke detectors to other renter problems. The town actually ended up coming in and condemning the farmhouse, deeming it unlivable. Yet I will just let you know that Lauren continued to live there. At one point, Michael was so exasperated with Lauren that he demanded she and Rob leave. It just wasn't working out. But they refused to leave. He was aware that she was the one making these calls? Yes, he was aware. She wasn't making a secret of it, and things were going to get much worse. Michael called 911 on them, but since eviction is a civil issue and not a criminal one, there wasn't much the police could do. He called a couple of times, and I'll get to that in a bit. So Michael ended up sleeping on a couch in one of his barns to get away from Lauren. And I'll tell you this, by the summer of 2019, things got very ugly because Lauren took to social media, creating an online game called Killer Chess. So in this game, the king and queen would be captured and killed. And she named Michael as the king and his assistant trainer and girlfriend, Mary, as the queen of this game. So it seems, you know, kind of threatening. I've never heard of that game. Have you? No, I don't know if she made this up or if this is an actual game. You know, I I don't have a clue. I'd never heard of it before Mm -hmm. as well. Lauren then publicly declared war on the two of them, claiming that the trainers were abusing her horses and making Lauren's lessons awful, though none of her claims could be substantiated. Couldn't they sue her for libel? Right, and yeah, I thought the same thing. Because it gets worse. She also publicly called Michael racist, homophobic, anti-Semitic, and violent, 
But his supporters claim nothing could be further from the truth, and no one else had ever made these allegations against him before, from what I could find. Did she have any proof of any of this? Not that it would matter, because she has no right to, you know, say these things publicly anyway. No, her proof was anecdotal. She said, this is what I observed. So whether or not you consider that proof. Did she have a lot of followers? Do you know? I think she had enough. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. And she had enough in the field. And that was the concerning thing, because this is his field. This is his professional Mm -hmm. reputation. Lauren's social media storm was ruining Michael's reputation and hurting his career. And people who knew Michael said he was spiraling out of control. And his personality had drastically changed from the time before he became embroiled in this feud with Lauren. As I said, Michael did call 911 on a few occasions to try and have Lauren and Rob evicted from the premises, at one point telling police that he really feared for his life. Let me play you a clip, Amy, from one of these calls. This is the last one he made before the incident I'm going to discuss in a minute, in which he's voicing his fear. And then Lauren is also contacted by the police. So you can hear both sides. Okay, so this is about a two or three minute clip. Now one of our three is the address of emergency. Hi, yeah, 411 West Mill Road for trespassers in the Collar Sports Bar. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, yeah, I own this place. I have some patients who have been living in this place, and they're, they were told to knock in the horse barn after 9 p.m. and they're in the horse barn. They're scumbags, and I want them warned. They have placed us out of our house, and I need this dealt with tonight. All right, that was 411 West Mill Road, Washington yeah, Township sure. at the horse barn. Tell me exactly what happened. There was a client, we have a horse stable, and I asked her to go home for the evening and she won't leave the morning. she's screaming at me. Disturbing the peace for the second time in three days. Okay, my partner, send help to stay on the line. I need some more information from you, okay? Thank you. Stay on the line with me. My name is Lauren. Your last name? Oh, I was Sorry, Tanarak. Sorry. So tonight I called because last night, please go from the top of place. Today, I'll be here... Um, I talked to them, everything was fine. It was over like a Facebook post, a crazy situation going on, very complicated. But last night, at 3.15 in the morning, there was like a very, very suspicious looking vehicle that came in to the driveway going very slowly with a large SUV and it was going very slowly. I just texted the barn owner. Are you calling about the suspicious vehicle now? Yes, it just came back. Okay, hold on. Were were weapons involved or mentioned? Um, no. It, all that happened was this this, this blacked out SUV with like some guy smoking a cigarette in the front. Like okay. never seen before, except for last night, three fifteen in the morning, and we overheard them talking about like uh, getting guys to like hurt us, kill us, whatever. We, we told it to the officers this afternoon, and they know how we have this information and everything. Are you or anyone else in danger right now? Am I scared again? Am I what? Are you or anyone else in danger right now? We feel very much as we could be, seeing as though this happened the other night. Okay, uh, tell me exactly what happened. These people are on our place. They have been living in our house in one of the apartment units. They are clients here on our horse stable. The situation is getting worse and worse and worse. The police have been here twice in the last three days. They're nuts. They're stalking us. They've, they're harassing us. Last night there was a Facebook post, which is what this woman does. She's uh, okay, anyway, the Facebook post says, my split personalities are going to take over, and I am not in control of what they do. Uh, we are in fear for our lives. 
No, no, I understand. But what is going on right now? Are, are they? That's what I'm telling you. I talked to a couple of my lawyers. He said, call them right away. Get something going. Uh, okay. Um, are, are they there now? They're down at the house we own, which is which is a miles from where we are. We're all holding up the stable. We're under siege here. If they come up the driveway, I don't know what to do. This is not looking good. This is the third time, and I'm getting no uh, relief. No, no, I understand, sir. Um, I have a family. I, sir, I, I understand. Um, it, the Facebook post said, everyone should be worried. I'm not responsible for anything my other personalities do when they're threatened. I may uh, hide in okay, the pocket. Okay. Hold on. Right, I'm just paraphrase. Everyone should be worried. I'm not responsible for my behavior. Anything my other personalities do when they're threatened. That's insane, and we are in fear for our lives. So, Amy, what do you what do you, you hear anything there? I mean, I know we don't judge these calls as much, but I hear it, it sounds like this man is crying out for help, and no one and they're not they don't seem to be taking it seriously. It sounds very threatening to me. I do understand why some of the earlier calls it might just seem like a private mm-hmm. matter. Like this one says this, mm-hmm. and that one says that. And I understand maybe why those were not taken as seriously. But that last call. Sounds fearful. Yeah. And I think he has reason to be fearful. Well, some people might agree with you. Michael said that he was just so overwhelmed with the stress of dealing with Lauren's harassment online. He was also worried what she might do next, according to him. So much so that he actually moved Mary and the children out of the farmhouse. Her daughter, I believe, was already going back to school, but she... They moved Mary's son back to her father's house, even though he said he didn't want to. He was just concerned of the environment. And as I said, Michael and Mary, they moved to a different house on his property about a quarter of a mile, so nearer to the stables. But this didn't stop Lauren. On the morning of August 7th, 2019, Lauren took to Facebook again and posted the following, quote, My moves against them have been planned for months. Everything I've done to them so far has been child's play. I mean, along with what Michael reported on that 911 call about this, I can't be held responsible for my split personalities. She wrote this. When was that call? You just said this one was August. When was the 911 call? It was right before then, a couple days before, if not even sooner. So it was Right exactly at that time. I mean, this sounds pretty threatening to me. I'm not going to lie. I would feel a little bit threatened as well if I knew this was being directed at me. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after this post, Amy, a caseworker from Child Protective Services came to check on Mary's kids. Why might you ask? Well, CPS had been contacted by SafeSport. SafeSport is a group that looks to end sexual abuse in sports. And Lauren had filed a report with them about Michael. Jeez. Yeah. So like I said, Mary's daughter was away at school and her son moved in permanently with his father. So they weren't actually there at the house when CPS came, which was good. But Lauren alleged that Michael was a bully and a body shamer. But when SafeSport asked if the reported incident involved child abuse, Lauren alleged that Michael was sexually abusing Mary's children. CPS had to conduct interviews and there did not seem to be any support for these allegations. However, the very allegation and reporting of abuse and especially sexual abuse in itself would certainly be enough to ruin Michael's career in the training world. If it wasn't already ruined from all the other allegations. If it wasn't already ruined. So this is what happens. While the caseworker was still at the home interviewing Mary, Michael went into his office and opened his safe, retrieving a pink and black Ruger handgun. 
Now, this handgun didn't actually belong to him. It belonged to one of his clients, Dr. Ruth Cox, who boarded her horses at Michael's stables. She had stored the gun in her safe that day so that it was in a secure location while she was riding. While Michael did own some of his own firearms, I don't believe they were in working order. So he took Ruth's firearm, got in his car, and drove to the other side of the property where Lauren and Rob were living in his farmhouse. According to Lauren, Michael showed up near the farmhouse porch and stayed half hidden by the bushes. When she and Rob came out of the porch to confront him, Michael pulled out the gun and fired at them. Oh, Rob Goodwin tackled Michael to the ground and Lauren's dog bit Michael while Rob was on top of him. But Lauren had been shot twice in the chest. What? On the 911 call, Rob can be heard saying, quote, a man came here with a fucking gun. I have him detained right now. I'm on top of a very big man. I'm five fucking six and this guy is six fucking three. He shot at me and my girlfriend, Lauren. He still has the gun in his hand. That's direct. I don't like to say the F word that much, just so you know, guys. Wow, that took a turn. I know this is really taking a turn of events. The police and first responders came shortly after the 911 call. And Michael reportedly was heard saying the following. I had a good life. Lauren and Rob were rushed to the hospital. Lauren in critical condition. Michael was also taken to the hospital for injuries sustained by Rob Goodwin and the dog. Michael was placed under arrest at the hospital, so he found himself in one of those situations where he woke up and he was handcuffed to the bed. Mm -hmm. He was charged then with two counts of attempted murder. Well, what was he to do? While Lauren had done some sabotaging to his career, he still had a rather successful training business. So do you think he's going to cooperate and take a plea? Would he go to trial? What are your thoughts? I'm assuming Lauren survived. Lauren did survive. Yes. Substantial injuries. Okay. Uh, I figured And that. so did her boyfriend, Rob. I would imagine he's going to take a plea. You would think so, right? Yeah. But Michael opted to go to trial. What is he going to claim? He can't claim self-defense. Well, what else might he claim, Amy? Duress? Insanity? Ah. Prosecutors claim that Michael was angry at Lauren for smearing his reputation and that he had acted out of anger and wanting these people gone from his life. Lauren got on the stand and testified about her extensive injuries having been in a coma and on a ventilator. But she also admitted on the stand, Amy, that she had planned to destroy him, which I don't think sat very well with the jury. She was pretty open about her harassment of him. So what would the move be by the defense? Well, you just said it. The defense opted for the very rare affirmative defense of insanity. They're going to claim temporary insanity, I'm assuming. Correct. Because yes. there's no other evidence. Okay. Correct. Just briefly, less than 1% of all criminal trials involve a plea of insanity. And when used, the defense only prevails in a quarter of those cases. So again, this is very rare. And because we also know that only 3 to 5% of cases ever go to trial, this is not an overused legal defense. I'll just do a brief history here about the insanity defense and its origins for those who don't know. The insanity defense was first established in the case of the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan by John Hinckley. John Hinckley, if you recall, had grown obsessed with the actress Jodie Foster and somehow believed that his assassination of the president would demonstrate his love for her. Now, while there was some debate by the experts, his defense asserted that he had major depressive disorder coupled with schizophrenia, while the prosecution contended that he had personality disorders, which would not necessarily fall under the umbrella of insanity. Remember, insanity is a legal term and not a medical one. 
Hinckley remained at a psychiatric facility for the next 18 years when he was finally granted visits with his parents. As of 2016, Hinckley was allowed to live with his mother in Virginia under many restrictions and conditions. But as of 2022, a then 67-year-old Hinckley was released from supervision and is now on his own, the courts having found him stable at this time. Most states followed after Hinckley's case was decided in Washington, D.C. in 1982 in developing an insanity defense. But they vary from state to state, and not every state has them. Do you teach about this in your courses, Amy, the insanity defense at all? I talk about the McNaughton standards. We talk a lot about the difference between insanity and competency. Right, right, right. Competency to stand trial and then later claims of insanity. Okay. So competency to stand trial is an initial test to see if someone is able to participate in the proceedings against them. If they're deemed incompetent, they have to receive treatment until such time where they become competent again to stand trial. Yeah. I usually tell my students even to put it more simply is competency is your mental state at the time of trial. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas insanity is your mental state at the time of the crime. And I think that's much simpler you agree? than the way I said it. So thank you. <laughs> no, I mean, your way was correct, but I just figured Yes, I'd... your way is simpler for sure. Well, then let me talk about the McNaughton rule that you said you teach about, because certain states have the McNaughton rule, whereby a defendant cannot understand the difference between right and wrong because of a disease of the mind. Now, this standard was developed in England in 1843 after Daniel McNaughton attempted to assassinate Assistant Prime Minister Sir Robert Peel, because he believed Peel wanted him dead. Instead, he wound up shooting and killing Peel's assistant secretary, Edward Drummond. Many other states follow what we call the model penal code. So this is where a person can't decipher between right and wrong, or if they can, they can't conform their conduct to the law. So this is a broader standard than the McNaughton rule. Now, the model penal code, for for people who don't know it, is a model code assembled by the American Legal Institute that was first unveiled in 1962. Following the model penal code's introduction, many states reformed their criminal codes to comport to the standard. Only one or two states still use the irresistible impulse test, whereby a defendant is unable to control their impulses because of mental defect. And then there's the Durham rule, which is only used, I believe, in one state now. And this is a very broad category because the Durham rule simply states that mental defect leads to a crime. So very broad. And then there's the fact that, and I'm sure you teach about this, I do, some states have abolished the insanity defense entirely. And in those states, they allow for guilty but mentally ill. Now, the thing about guilty but mentally ill means that a defendant will be treated until they're no longer ill, but then they have to serve the prison sentence. So this is really a punitive approach. And I think it was favored in places where they thought insanity was too kind of lenient to offenders. I think people were worried that there was not enough retribution when someone would prevail on an insanity case. Right. Because then, like Hinckley, you could be released to the community perhaps earlier than maybe the public would think is fair. It's true, but you have to realize in these cases, too, like these insanity cases and ones high profile like Hinckley and Andrea Yates, I mean, they remained in the psychiatric facility Mm -hmm. for years and years and years and, you know, without any, you know, it's a gradual process. They're treated over a long period of time. Although I do understand some of the resistance for people who don't maybe know that as well. And I, I can understand that in terms of punishment. Well, 
Michael was in the state of New Jersey, which has the McNaughton rule. So how would he go about establishing this defense? Mary Haskins testified at trial. Remember, that was his girlfriend. How fearful Michael had become and the panicked state that he was living in due to Lauren's smear campaign. Mary also said that while she and Michael were no longer a couple, he had been wonderful to both her and her children and that he never mistreated any of them in any way. The defense brought in two forensic psychologists who said that the type of terror Lauren subjected Michael to absolutely caused him to snap and enter a state of temporary insanity. But the prosecution had another expert who refuted these claims, calling to the fact that Michael could not remember his crime, a position established early in the defense. But just because he said he couldn't remember it didn't mean, you know, that he actually didn't. He could have been faking that for trial. And they also said, you know, it's, it's convenient that he remembers everything else, but not the actual crime. The defense countered with the fact that Michael had also suffered terrible head injuries during that altercation from Goodwin um, when Goodwin had tried to subdue him so that these injuries might explain memory loss. If I recall, didn't Michael say something to the effect of my life is over? He said, I had a good life, kind of in, I think he was like in a haze to himself. But that also implies that he knows he did something wrong and he will perhaps be facing a punishment. That's how I read that. That could, yeah. Or it could just be at that moment he clicked into reality and went, oh my gosh, I had a good life. You know, it's hard to interpret Mm -hmm. that, but I understand your point. Yeah. Michael did not testify, but his appearance became a real focal point of the trial because remember I had said he was normally very regal, stoic, elegant, you might say. And in court, he appeared completely disheveled with long, raggedy hair. He cried and shook a lot through most of the testimony. And in general, he appeared a broken man. Whether this was an act or not, you can debate, but this was the appearance in the courtroom. And the the prosecution did, in fact, claim that this was an act and that Michael was faking his condition to escape a criminal conviction. Can you remind me that 911 call that you played Mm -hmm. when Michael called asking for help? Yes. How... How long before the attempted murder was that? Oh, this was just a night or two. It was right before it. Okay. But it wasn't within like a couple of minutes or hours. It was definitely. No, it wasn't that close of a time frame, but it was close. Gotcha. Okay. Because I think that, I think that would matter. We could talk about that. But it's very close. And then CPS shows up at his house. Mm So these events happen kind of on top of each other Mm -hmm. almost. Well, the trial for Michael Barrison lasted two weeks before the jury deliberated. And what did the jury find? They found him not guilty by reason of insanity. Wow. Yes. That's shocking. Very surprising. At the verdict, Michael fell into his attorney's arms, crying hysterically, and his attorneys were reeling, claiming publicly that justice had been served. Where is Michael now? Well, Michael is currently residing in a psychiatric facility where he will remain until such time when professionals feel that he does not pose a danger to society. He'll be evaluated every six months to make this determination. Lauren Kanarek is suing Michael Barrison in the civil courts, to which he has filed a counter suit. Mm-hmm. And while his romantic relationship with Mary ended, Michael somehow found a new partner. He began a relationship with Lara Osborne, who'd also worked for him at one point. And although the two cannot physically date, She is a strong supporter of his and hopes that they will be able to bring their relationship to fruition in the real world sometime soon. 
as I said at the beginning, Amy, part of the reason I chose this case was because I thought it brought up this discussion of victimization and how it doesn't always go in one direction. I think that it's very clear, and I think almost all of us would acknowledge that Lauren and Rob were the victims of a terrifying and violent assault that caused them much fear, physical pain, and I'm sure various other long-term consequences that come along with such a violent crime. The fact that they not only survived the attack, but have made what seems to be full physical recoveries, despite what could have easily been lethal, is pretty remarkable. So I want to make it clear in this part that I'm not disputing their trauma in any way. They certainly did not deserve to be shot. However, while Lauren was a victim, she was also a victimizer, in my opinion, using psychological torture and threats to instill fear into Michael Barrison. She waged a very public threatening campaign on him, dismantling his life in various ways, making horrible accusations, threatening posts on social media. And in fact, Amy, when I was reviewing some of these posts, I realized that if this was directed at me, I would have been very afraid as well. I could see how this would have affected him very profoundly. So uh, I'm just curious. Do you have any thoughts about that part? I think two wrongs don't make a right. Absolutely. I think what Lauren did was... Yeah, you know, what Lauren did was not right. I think the police should have taken Michael's claims seriously. I think they're partially to blame here. Okay. Um, obviously, Michael is the one who pulled the trigger, but yes, I, I think the police should have responded more seriously. Okay. Lauren was threatening, and I think it's very likely that Lauren would have turned next to physical. It seems like it would have escalated. It does sound like it was escalating. And here's what I was wondering as I was watching this and started reading. I thought, does Lauren have a history of this type of behavior? Because this is her first time and yet she escalated it and had a lot. So I did some digging and it was kind of hard to find some stuff. But what I found was not a total surprise to me. So Lauren seems to have been embroiled in several online threatening types of behavior with other people. One woman came forward to try and help Michael, sharing a threatening message Lauren had sent her. Let me read you this message. I don't have to be nice to you. You're stupid and ugly and should just overdose. And then she also said, there's a reason I have a reputation of being crazy, expressing that this woman wouldn't want to meet her in a dark alley. I mean, to me, this is unrelated, though. I mean, maybe it could show a pattern of behavior. I wanted but... to know the pattern of behavior. Um, and, and I really wanted to yeah. see Lauren's pattern of behavior. And if, you know, if this was her first time of doing this, how, you know, could we believe her and that she was not in the uh, the shooting, that she was a victimization, but she also said that he victimized her. So I wanted to know. Another woman in the equestrian world also filed a complaint with SafeSport alleging that Lauren was harassing her online. But SafeSport said that these matters were personal and they didn't take any action against Lauren. I have to say, I think that might have been a mistake in that regard. Lauren also had a pending criminal charge of cyber stalking and harassment, and she had a history of filing false reports. This definitely shows a pattern of behavior, for sure. And I don't know the full extent of Lauren's background, but by her own words, she sought to destroy Michael Barrison's reputation. One of the reasons I looked at Lauren's past as well, because I wondered to what extent she played any role in her own victimization, which is not the same as victim blaming. But I did think of victimization theories when it comes here. Do you, do you think that might apply? Like victim precipitation theory, because she somehow provoked. Right. So I would say she actively provoked. So it would be active precipitation, which is different than passive. 
Right. Is that what you were thinking? I was thinking that. Yes, I was thinking of victim precipitation. And we know that passive precipitation is when a victim can't help the factor that they have that may unknowingly provoke an offender. I mean, this could be anything ranging from gender to ethnicity, age, occupation. So these are, you know, factors that might unwittingly provoke an offender. But in this case, there's active precipitation whereby a victim's actions intentionally provoke an offender. Mm -hmm. It does not mean they're it's meant to blame them, but it does explain how the crime occurred. I think this case is a textbook example of that victimization theory. I think so as well. Now, what you think about explaining Michael's behavior probably differs based on what you think in terms of if he's guilty and that was an incorrect finding or if you think that the insanity was correct. Because if you think the insanity finding was correct, then we could attribute this to strain snapping due to the pressure and the harassment that he felt. Yeah, I think he lacked the proper coping mechanisms to deal with all of the the negative stimuli that was coming from Lauren. I mean, his livelihood was being threatened. I don't blame him for getting upset, but we all have to know no matter how angry and upset we get, we cannot take the law into our own hands. That's, you know, vigilantism. Can't do that. Of course. So is this vigilante justice or is he not guilty by reason of insanity? It seems like you're siding on the fact of vigilante justice. I don't see insanity here. I understand why he was so upset and I understand why he was so angry. But I think it would be a slippery slope if we said it's okay because she harassed him first. I mean, it's not okay just because somebody does harm to you doesn't mean you can do harm to them. Well, that's absolutely agreed upon. I think we don't condone vigilante justice. However, Mm -hmm. I'm going to say that I'm not sure about this one. I think there's a very real possibility that his insanity defense was successful because it was real. I, you know, looked at the expert's testimony. And of course, it always comes down to a battle of the experts here. And who do you believe? What I will say is I can't be sure, but I don't blame the jury for their finding of insanity. Mm -hmm. I think they heard all the evidence and they believed that this was you know, an otherwise normal man without a criminal history, without violence. And they they believe that he really, truly snapped. Yeah, I would be interested in looking at some of the expert testimony. I'm also interested to see, because we are at the end, what's going to happen? This is a recent case. So and it's temporary insanity. So will he be fine in six months from now? Is he safe to release? What kind of conditions are they going to put on him? I mean, This is an attempted murder, so I think he needs to spend some serious time in a psychiatric facility, you know, of finding out how to address these underlying issues if they're, in fact, very real. So I am curious to see how this case proceeds going further and what happens with him and their countersuits. I'm curious about that as well. I saw Lauren made a statement like, yes, I said bad things. I did bad things. Unfortunately, she received a lot of hate mail. A lot of people sided with Barrison, just so you know. It was more about his supporters. And she got hate mail and she made sure to point out, like, I know I said and did bad things, but I'm a victim. I was shot in the chest. I almost died for these things. So please try to remember that. And and definitely there, you know, I think this might be a case where there is more than one victim. I would predict that he's not going to be spending a lot of time where he is. I would hope if they release him that that they'd be able to make sure he's medication compliant. I'm assuming that'll be a condition of his release. But it sounds like, you know, he is a danger to society. What if somebody else pisses him off? What's he going to do? Right. That's the very real question and the one that we should be concerned about. Look, I hope for everyone's sake 
that he's amenable to treatment and that he recuperates and he's slowly released. And I mean released mm-hmm. in the way like that others have with supervised visits. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to just yep. release someone outright. I think that's, you know, appropriate. So I will make sure to keep everyone kind of posted on this one because I found it very, very interesting. Before we go today, I think we have a question from one of our supporters. We do. We have a question. This is from one of our supporters that we got a chance to meet at our last happy hour. She had just joined that day. Oh, so fun. it's super cool to meet her. Um, her question is, she says that she works as an insurance adjuster and she has a master's in accounting and in psychology. She wants to know what she can do to volunteer her skills to help women who are wrongfully convicted and or who are appropriately convicted, but getting ready to reintegrate into society. First of all, I think that's incredible that you're even thinking about how you could help. And I don't think people realize just how much help people need in this area, particularly in accounting and just, you know, money management, financial literacy. That's a large part of reentry services. So I think if you are interested in volunteering your time for individuals upon reentry that are wrongfully convicted, you can check out the Innocence Network. And they have on their website, they have a list of all of the organizations that they work with. And it's usually by state. So you could see your local project or the local organization that works with people who are wrongfully convicted. And I'm sure they'd be happy to have your services. Other than that, I would look into local reentry services. As I said, financial literacy is a huge part of reentry. So they would be lucky to have someone like you who obviously has the skills and the passion. Yes, thank you for that great answer, Amy. And thank you to our listeners who always like to get involved and are so engaged and generous with their time. I think it's fabulous. We're very lucky. And the people who are in this field are very lucky to have you. Thanks for that. Okay, well, thank you so much for listening today, everyone. And we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash women in crime. Sources for today's episode include CBS News, The New York Times, and an episode of 48 Hours. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.